Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have um, another founder, which is uh, very, very exciting, but a founder as well that has the um, international background. I mean, I, I have that too, and it's it's really amazing to see. So without further ado, Jaime Zakariasen, the founder of Bibino. Welcome on board. Thank you very much for having me on board. So uh, before the entrepreneurial role, you went from being a CTO at Virus 112 to becoming the CEO of Bulgard. So this is obviously a big jump from the technical side to more like the strategy, sales, you know, the vision side. So how was that transition for you? Yeah, good question. I think I think I was always very, very technical. And even as a so my education and background is not as an engineer. It's I have a business uh, background, but I'm always seen as pretty technical. Um, so even if I don't code myself, I'm you know I'm still seen as that. So for me, uh, maybe it wasn't that big a shift because as a CEO, as a founder, I'm still kind of technical. Uh, so, but it's definitely a shift. It's good to start at one place with with more of the tech part and then move into the more managerial stuff. So I think it worked really well. Got it. So, so can you tell us a little bit about the experience at Bulgard, where you were the um, the CEO? I think, uh, yeah, that was interesting. We the, the story with Bulgard is that um, uh, Morton Lund and Tice Sonnegar Tice, who's also a founder at Vivino, um, we had this deal with with Casa, which was the big peer to peer platform back then, and to build some security on top of that. So, so that was the basic idea. Hey, you have this product called Casa, which was the sort of follow up on on Napster, extremely popular, and we built a security thing on top of that. Uh, for me, it was my first sort of being really being a. Uh, a founder early on. I, I was I always saw myself as a semi-founder because Thais and Morton started a little bit before, uh, but there wasn't much there uh, when I got there. And being part of building that was an amazing experience. And and generally as a founder, you know, being experienced, having done it for now like 20, uh, 20 years is just, you know, it, it's so valuable. That's what you really start start picking things up. But it was an amazing experience because we, we were put on this rocket ship called Kazaa, which had tens of millions of users, and we built used that as distribution and built the security products on top of that. That's amazing. So how many people were there when you arrived, and, and how many, to how many people did you scale that up? 
Oh no, it was just it, so. So it was just Morton, uh, Ties, and me. So it was just the three of us, uh, um, right from the beginning, and we built. Wow, that's amazing. So then, that's a nice uh, transition into Vivino. So how how did you get really started with the you know incubating the idea with the entrepreneurial box? So how how did that happen? Yeah, I th with Vivino. So coming out of Bulgar there. I was always, you know, I want to do something that is a little bit more fun. What was what what drove me? What was my passion around Bulgard was really building the company and creating something. It's always about building something. The security aspect itself was not a big motivator for me. So when I when I went out and say I want to do something else, I wanted something that I felt was interesting and fun. And obviously, wine is. And and for me, I'm not from the wine industry. I knew nothing about wine back then. I know a little bit more now, um, but but for me, it was about solving a problem that I had, and I I had an idea that a lot of people had. It's walking into a supermarket, seeing this wall of wine, and then figuring out, hey, what's good, what's bad? How do we solve that problem? So that was the premise uh, to get started because nobody had really done that before. Got it. So so who are the co-founders? So with the Vino, it's Thais, uh, who was always with, also with Bulgard, and me. Okay, so then you had the chance of being behind the trenches a little bit. And, and at what point did you say, okay, guys, uh, you know, both of you, you're like, okay, we're going to do this. Yeah, I, I started out with the idea early on. And after I had played around with it for about a year, I tried to convince Thais to join me. And... When he was sort of sold on the idea, I always also went to uh, uh, to London uh, to meet with one of the two founders of Skype and, and said to him, hey, we have this thing. We'd love to build this. How about you put some money in it? And he ended up doing that. So when when those pieces came together and, and Ty said, you know, I think we should do this. And and Janos Fries, uh, Skype co-founder, said also, hey, he would be willing to, to uh, get some funding to begin with. We just said, hey, let's do this. Um, we thought there was an amazing opportunity. And and, and this is something I, I, I always say when we talk about the early days here, that timing is something that people forget when it comes to startup. It's so incredibly important. And when we went for this around 2010, it was the absolute optimal time. Uh, there were a lot of wine apps out there already. There were actually 600 wine apps in the App Store when we started. But the timing of, you know, the smartphone coming out a few years before, all the phones being online, and also having a decent camera, that happened just around that time. So the market was very mature to do something like this. Got it. So how did you divide the uh, responsibilities between the two of you? Yeah. So it, it's for us, it's always been sort of pretty uh, natural. First of all, we were very product-focused, fo both of us. But he was always more product, more tech, and I was more the business side. If you want to talk deal maker, that was definitely always me. Um, so we overlap heavily. So we have sort of checks and balances on each other. Uh, at the same time, we know you know where where we're stronger, uh, sort of between us. Got it. And the uh, business model. What was the business model, or what is the business model of Vivino? Yeah, it's, sometimes I joke that the business model is venture capital, but um, uh, we back in the day, <laughs> it was it was about uh, sort of a land grab, saying, "Okay, we think there can be a really really big wine app with an amazing wine database behind it, and we want to build that." 
Um, so, so, so when we pitched this to investors back then, we said, hey, if we get millions of users on this, obviously they're going to buy wine through Vivino. So, so we saw that right away. We just didn't start building it. So strategy from the beginning is go in, build the best product in the world, win the space, and have some ideas about what the business model is going to be. But don't start building it right now. Yeah, yeah. And you're very humble. I mean, you were, you were talking about uh, knowing a bit about wines, but how many wines are right now in your database? Yes, I obviously, thank you very much. I obviously don't know them all, but um, no, we have around 10 million wines in the database from oh. 200,000 producers. So it is by far the biggest wine database ever built. And, and really what, what makes me happy and sort of makes me sort of satisfied is that you can walk into a supermarket in Copenhagen now and look up every single wine there and we will have a rating. We'll tell you if it's good or not so good. And you just couldn't do that seven, eight years ago. Beautiful. And how many users are using Vivino? Yeah, so we have uh, 33 million users um, and they're using the app quite a bit. Uh, they look up around 2 million wines every single day. And and the, the cool thing about an app like Vivino is that you, people, you drink wine with other people. So we're actually getting 20,000 new users every single day. Got it. And I have to ask this. What is your favorite white wine and what is your favorite red wine? Oh, yeah. I, as you can imagine, I do get this question once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> right. So And I still never answer it. But I'll give you, like, I, I live in California now, so I drink a lot of Napa Caps. I drink a lot of California uh, Pinot Noirs. I love that. And then I must admit, all these, all this like good sparkling, like champagne, I really enjoy that quite a lot too. That's wonderful, especially going into the holiday season. I'm sure that the listeners are going to really enjoy that that recommendation. So. Going back to the business, how much capital has been raised to date for Vivino? So we've raised uh, $57 million so far, and the last round was our, our C round just over a year, just about a year ago. Got it. So uh, so it was like the $57 million, it was done in trenches. So how, yeah, exactly. how much did you raise on the on the C round? On the C round, we did 25 on the B, and we did 10 on the A. Got it, got it. So, and I, and I see that. You guys have raised from like really fantastic uh, VCs. I see Balderton, you have them on board. So how did you get in front of these investors? Yeah, I think um, it's, I think when, when you, what I often tell people is that, you know, uh, raising millions of dollars is not hard. Building a product that millions of users use is hard. And um, for us, it's always been about, you know, building the most amazing product, trying and trying to win this space. And from that, you know, finding investors and so on. As soon as you have built something, people say, hey, there is something here. Uh, they will come to you. Obviously, you built a network around it and so on. Um, so you just have a lot of conversations, a lot of lunches and so on. And it just, you know, getting in front of them uh, has never been a problem for us. Uh, obviously, closing the deal and so on can be a little bit more complicated. Yeah. I mean, especially if you have all these millions of users, you know, I'm sure that it gets a little bit easier to to really get in front of uh, folks. And, you know, just uh, out of curiosity here between you and your co-founder, did you guys divide and conquer when it came to financing or it was the two of you very much involved? Uh, I, I always led that part of the, the business and uh, 
But that said, when you get to, uh, hey, now you're doing a, a proper pitch in front of uh, a, a management group or, or a partner group at, at a VC, you should always be two people. That's something, an advice I really want to give to everybody out there. Um, you really need to be two people always. You just, it just works better. Uh, so definitely always be two people. And he, he, whenever possible, he would be with me for that. Everything around that, I would manage. Got it. And and how, because in many instances, you see how VCs are like completely turned off when they see like founders talking over each other or that lack of alignment or, you know, sense of, of the same vision and mission being shared. So how, how, for example, did you guys have that alignment? Because, I mean, you need to have an unbelievable alignment to raise, you know, this, this over $50 million that you guys have raised. Yeah. So, so align, absolute alignment um, it's probably never going to be there, which is fine. But I tell you, when you speak to investor, there is absolute alignment. So, so there's 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 no <laughs> such thing as disagreeing in the when you're doing meeting meetings with external. Like it's, you know, when you have kids, uh, it's the same thing. The parents, you have to align exactly. If you disagree, you will disagree later. You will not have any disagreements in front of the kids. You will not have any disagreements in front of investors. And I don't mean to compare investors to children, but uh, uh, but there is a comparison there. When you go into that room, you are hand in hand. There is no uh, misalignment of any kind. So we've always done that really well, but we also worked together for the past 20 years. That helps, right? Got it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I guess, uh, you know, multiple rounds that you guys have raised and, and obviously every round is different as you as you continue to push. So you did your B, 25 million, the C, 20 million. So the in terms of, for example, like the the way you approach this, like, for example, did you have like any bankers supporting you on this, uh, let's say, later rounds? So um, we the when we did our B round and C round, they actually the. The investor that came on board actually had bankers, okay. and and the C round was not because it was uh, mostly an internal round, so that was a little bit different. But the B round, uh, the incoming part, had a banker. Uh, but apart from that, I haven't really worked with bankers. Uh, no, I think it definitely can make sense, especially at a later stage. Uh, I I don't believe in using bankers in the early stages at all. Yeah. Uh, just just. My simple philosophy on that is that the bankers that will help you raise, say, smaller money, uh, they know that they're based on commissions yeah. and raising small amounts of money just isn't very interesting. So whatever bankers are helping you raise a million bucks, they're not going to be the greatest bankers because they're going to be raising $100 million because they know they got a cut of that. So, so yeah. I don't believe in, in using bankers in the early stages at all. Yeah, and I agree with you. I I don't believe in bankers. I don't believe in brokers, and uh, you know that's actually why the um, the nature of my of my next business, which is uh, Panthera Advisors, which is basically an extension of the teams that we work with on the advisory side of things. But anyways, that's another conversation. So yeah. you onboarded family offices as well, such as SCP, which is yeah. the investment firm of uh, Christophe Navarre, who is the yeah. who was the head of of Moed Hennessy, which is you know really nice. A strategic synergy there for for you guys. So, what is the difference that you have seen between dealing with VCs and family offices? Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, very interesting. Um, yeah, so when we did our B round, Christophe Navarre came on board, uh, an amazing you know industry giant uh, who'd worked in, in in liquor and wine for the past 
well, uh, is it like 30, 40? He's, he's, he's been with, uh, he's been leading LVMH, which is one of the biggest groups for the past like 15, 20 years or so. An amazing uh, privilege there. Um, obviously, uh, there's going to be some clashes there because he comes from a different industry with a different mindset. Whereas I feel that that the 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 venture capitalists and so on uh, are more aligned with our mindset. Uh, obviously, he comes from a completely different uh, different mindset. Uh, but that said, you know that mindset. That experience can really help us a lot, uh, but it's very, very different, obviously. So diving a little bit more into that mindset, because, you know, I, I agree with you. I mean, I've I've dealt and raised money from family offices and, and venture firms, and, and they're completely different. No? So yeah. I guess, like, what does that mindset look like for the people that are listening so that they get, like, more a visual, you know, insight into that? Yeah, I think if you look at, at VCs, uh, you have to remember all their funds are time limited. Uh, so they have a specific pattern. They go, hey, we're going to invest here. Uh, we're going to uh, maximize the value of this company for whatever, five to seven years. And then there's going to be some kind of liquidity event. Um, and that's pretty standard for a lot of these early stage. And I think there's reason that model is there. It works pretty well. I think a lot is going to change in the future, but it works pretty well. When it comes to a family office, it can be anything. You know, It can be someone who says, no, 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 I want to keep this for 40 years for my kids. Uh, so it's about creating long-term value. It can be someone else coming in and saying, hey, no, no, I want this to be profitable tomorrow. So you really, really have to be careful uh, with what you do with that. And, and in my opinion, Maybe especially people that don't have experience. Like if you get early stage people on board, if we had someone in the very early stages who just said, hey, you need to go out and, and make some revenue right now, we would have lost this game. We would have spent our energy on building revenue. And, and at that point, we'd lost the global uh, land grab that this was. So timing that right and getting the people that are aligned with whatever your vision is, is incredibly important. Uh, money is, it can come from a lot of places. You get the wrong money in uh, on your cap table, you could really be screwed. So, so always, you know, you will make a lot of mistakes doing a startup, but don't mess with the cap table. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree 100%. You need to guard that jealously. So uh, family offices are secretive, uh, Heine. And uh, I guess the, um, you know, just for the people that are listening as well, and, and based on your experience, how do you typically find these family offices? What's the way to get in front of them and, and also close them as investors? Yeah. Funny thing is, we talked about bankers earlier. Um, actually, it was their banker that found us. Um, again, I'm, I'm a little bit different in the way that uh, Vivino uh, compared to the size of the company and so on, is very, very high profile. So uh, we get a massive amount of inbound interest from all kinds of places. So so I'm not the best sort of most typical um, example of that. We haven't done a lot of outbound reach uh, in that way. So, But family offices are all over. And in that case, you might want to go to specific events or use specific, uh, have people introduce you uh, to these groups. They can be hard to find. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And on the, uh, you were mentioning earlier during our conversation, you were talking about the the Skype founder. So yeah. I mean that that could you know perhaps that person has another family office, but but that's a that's a another conversation. I guess what I wanted to ask you here is 
At what point did you feel it was the right time to start having conversations with with high profile people like that? I I think um, it had gotten to a point where um, uh, I alone or or uh, ties, you know, we needed to take it to the next level and really commit to this and maybe get some more people join us. Then you'll need some funding. And at that stage, uh, you, we were fortunate. We'd, we'd done startup before, reasonably successful. And, and at that point, it's a lot about the people, right? So in this particular case, we knew Giannis from before. He, he'd seen us build something before. And he said, what you built so far, you know, it, it's not much. It's mostly a PowerPoint and some ideas. And you built a little bit, uh, but he had faith in us as people. So in the early stages, it's a lot about having trust in the people. So however early you can start building relationships with people, angels, and so on, so they can say, yeah, this guy's straight. That helps you at some point when you need to raise some money. Yeah. And in, in your case, uh, moving through, through, let's say, the C to the A, B, and then C rounds, did you see the mindset or the type of concerns or the questions that the investor were, were asking, shifting perhaps more from growth on the uh, user acquisition and retention side to perhaps more the revenue side as you would continue to, to grow and, and, and mature on the financing life cycles? Definitely. Yeah, very much so. so I think that when, when going through the stages, first of all, Janos is, uh, is, is very, it's very, he's a unique because he's been so extremely successful. Uh, so he thinks big, obviously. But when it comes to local, uh, maybe seed investors in Denmark, going to Creandum, who's more of a Nordic player, getting to Balderton, who's more of a European global player, the really shift there is how big they think. Like, once you get to a Balderton, uh, they will not invest, it's my thinking at least, if there isn't a chance that this can become a billion-dollar business. And and for the seed investors in, in, in Denmark, they might not need that. So the mindset from like thinking big and size is, uh, is very, very different. Then when you get to an industry uh, magnet like, uh, like Christoph, it's different. He, he's thinking, okay, how can we put $20 million in marketing and get that money back? And so sort of more of a, a growth uh, kind of mindset, um, which, is, which is different, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting that, that you were mentioning this because on my the previous company that we built, so that was a, a marketplace, and it was really interesting to see the mentality, for example, because I'm originally from Spain, the, the mentality that the investors had there, you know, like I remember at a, at a Series A or a C, they were asking me about revenue. I was like, I was like, I cannot believe that they're asking <laughs> me for this because ultimately profits and hey, if you're a VC in Spain right now listening, you know, like the truth is that profits today is not going to mean success on a marketplace tomorrow. Would you agree? No, I, I would. It, it very much depends on what kind of company you're building, right? Uh, if you do a, a software as a service, B2B, obviously uh, revenue is important because that's what's going to drive you all the way. We were a community where we wanted to win this space and then put the marketplace on top. At that point, it really makes sense to uh, to wait. And always, like one of my sort of main philosophies here at doing a startup is just focus. You always lack resources. Don't try and do too many things. If you, Whatever you do, when you take resource from something, you will lose somewhere else. So as soon as you use 
10% of your time getting revenue, that 10% is not coming in growth somewhere else. That's just the way it is. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the, um, the you know, we were talking about the the size and the scale of, of what you guys have done with Vivino, which is remarkable. I mean, 10 million, over 10 million wines on the database, over 30 million users. What, what have been some of the scaling challenges that you guys have experienced? Yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> That's a podcast by itself almost. Um, no, it's uh, so building this big a database has been a big challenge. Um, also, because we decided starting out, which which is fine, to aggressively and not thinking too much about the quality of the data, say, hey, we'll just, we want to grow fast. Let's get all the data in there and see how it goes. And obviously, we ended up paying the price for that at some point because you have to clean up the data. So we went through many, many different stages here from just having a, a, a data team that added anything that was out there to now really having a very structured process and doing really good quality assurance on most of the wines out there. So there are levels of this. And I would, you know, depending on what you're building, uh, you know, get the ball rolling. Don't try and build perfection in the beginning, because if you try and build perfection in the beginning, People think, well, this database doesn't have anything. Sure, it has 3% of what I want, and it's perfect. But you have to make a trade-off. There's a no, no, I'd rather have 60% of what I want at an okay quality. Uh, so those trade-offs are incredibly important in the beginning. And we made that choice saying, okay, we want to have a lot of wines in there. And we paid the price in the quality. And not till 13, 14, we really started to improve the quality. And now the data is like unique and incredibly good. Got it. And one of the things that, that I think is, uh, is interesting is, you know, and, and I identify and, and relate myself to you here, is that you, as a foreign entrepreneur, you know, coming here to, to other markets, like let's say the U.S., you know, you're facing a different culture, a different market. So what were some of your learnings during this process of, of adjusting to a different, yeah. you know, place? Uh, good question. I think, um, first of all, you know, uh, coming from, from somewhere that's very different than Silicon Valley, I, I really like coming here. I really enjoy Silicon Valley. I, uh, for someone who's from, from a different place, like it, it's like coming home because everybody talks tech and startups, which is what I want to do too. So it makes a lot of sense. I, well, learnings, one of the things I really appreciate picking up in this culture here is is how people think big. I. It actually takes a while when you come over here. You think, "Damn, this is interesting." Like when they when they just the minds of saying, "Hey, okay, good, that's cool. Can we put thirty million dollars at it and and make it really big?" <laughs> that mindset can be harder to find in smaller countries. So, just doing that, I think, was uh, was incredibly valuable and learning that. Yeah, I mean, I remember the. Um, you know, I have a funny story as a, as a founder here coming to the U.S. And I, I, when I started doing my first round of financing, I had um, an investor that, and he was at a pitch competition that said, "Hey, I love your presentation, but I think you should, you should uh, get better at pronouncing the word entrepreneur." <laughs> and uh, you know, my response was like, "Thank you very much. I would love to see you giving the same presentation in Spanish." And yeah, you know, exactly. everyone started laughing. And funny enough, that that investor ended up becoming an investor of ours. So if you are listening, investor, you know who you are. <laughs> but uh, but anyhow, uh, I wanted to ask you because one of the things that I really loved about your background, Heine, was that you've been in the in different pieces or in different parts of 
uh, being behind the trenches of building and scaling a business. So you've been on the COO role, you've been on the CEO, on the board member, on the chairman role. So if I may, I want to ask you uh, on each one of those, like what, what someone needs in order to be effective. So let's start with the COO. What does a COO, what, what, what makes a COO a success? Yeah, and I, I, I honestly think that's not my natural um, habitat, to be honest. Uh, but that's someone who is really good at operating, you know, putting things into system and like really running those processes. Um, so, so I think the difference between uh, look, I'm I'm really good at process too, but I don't like maintaining them. I like building them. Uh, so, so someone who's in uh, chief operating really should be good at maintaining too, which is maybe not what I'm good at. And moving into a more CEO role. Uh, a founder CEO is, is probably more my natural role. You have to be uh, an amazing evangelizer and getting people on board and, you know, creating the magic around the business. You also have to be very creative, uh, find ideas on how to solve problems that seem completely impossible. Um, but yeah, many, many things. Uh, when you get to the next level, which is like a board or so, uh, that's, that for me is starting... It's a different thing because, uh, and I'm not sure I'm good at it yet, at least, because my nature as an entrepreneur, as a founder, is a complete obsession, right? And, and uh, that's what I've always done. When I do something, I do it full on. There's no in-between. That, as a board member or as an investor, you have to be careful. Uh, you can't go in and, and get your fingers dirty because then you own it. Uh, so you have to be careful finding that right balance. I think a lot of founders uh, like myself might struggle a little bit with that when they move to a board or investor role. Yeah. And then the uh, the chairman role. What does what does a successful chairman look like? Again, the same thing with, with, the, with the chairman role is that you definitely want to coach the, the CEO and so on, but you can't start doing, telling that person what to do and, and actually doing it for them because then you own it and then you take sort of the role from the CEO. So it's super important that you have to be the coach and help them uh, find the direction, but you can't do it yourself. Got it. And, and in many instances, I, I believe in your case, you recently stepped up uh, to the board level, more focusing on strategy and, and brought in a, a CEO. And we've seen this happening with, with tremendous amount of success on on companies like, for example, LinkedIn, where Jeff was brought in by Reed. So I guess in, in your, for example, in your particular case, uh, what what was the, the trigger for you to say, okay, now time to bring in, you know, a fresh perspective? And what were you looking in that candidate to fill in this 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 role? Yeah, I, I also that that's a really it, it can be a lot of different factors, but uh, but at some point, having done this for eight years. Uh, you go through 10 different phases of a company and and you think to yourself, like, am I still the best to do what's coming in the next few years? And we were we're we're transforming now from just a large this large community into a, an actual marketplace. And and we started thinking like, hey, has someone because that's something you learn over the years, hey, if somebody's done something similar before, they can usually just do it better and faster. And we started looking and thinking, hey, are there companies out there? Are there CEO candidates out there that have done this before? And, and we were in incredibly privileged in, in finding Chris, uh, Chris Sakalakis, who was a part of, of, of building StopHub, 
from like something like $300 million marketplace with all kinds of complexity to multiple billion marketplace. Even though that's tickets, there are a lot of similarities in building a marketplace and, and bringing them on board has been incredibly good for us. And, you know, I speak with a lot of founders that are kind of like in the in that process of, hey, you know, like it's time to really take this thing to the next level and perhaps, you know, bring the expertise for this next day, like in the journey of the business. So so would you have like any type of recommendations or tips for for those that are in that uh, in that specific spot right now? Yeah, I, I, I especially when it comes to the to the onboarding, um, if you're bringing on board. Uh, a great and experienced CEO, uh, then you cannot be in the way anymore. Uh, you have to let go. Um, there's no, uh, there's no sharing that role. Uh, the time that that person walked in the door, uh, he or she needs to have that responsibility. So, so don't try and do anything half assed like you're trying to uh, control a little bit here and there. There are clear roles here, and and you can't share that role. And and how many employees are right now in Vivino? Uh, we're just over 100 people. That's amazing. So so you've you've won, you've come from nothing to like over 100. So in your case and in your experience, Heine, how do you identify the right people? Hmm. Yeah, um, I I definitely spend a lot of time like talking to people, doing interviews and so on. Really like feeling them and, and you know, what is their passion? What do they like? Can we motivate them? And so on. I, I definitely, with the size of organization that we have still, you know, 100 people, not that big. Uh, I really look for an entrepreneurial mindset. I really look for people uh, that take responsibility, are willing to, you know, walk the extra mile, but also what we call 360 people that can do a lot of different stuff. I think you need that in and, and in, in when you build these companies. So uh, so I really I, I try and challenge people if they, for instance, come from a big corporation. Hey, are you ready for this? We're going to be, let's say you're 20 people. It's not the same as working for Microsoft. It's very, very different. Um, and try and really push them on that. Are you ready for this? And, and, and so on. Got I don't it. know if there's a clear recipe, but um, but really try and find people that are passionate about what they do and really want to join the this mission that you're on. And obviously, when, when they join the mission, they're they're taking big sacrifices and and in many instances really big big pay cuts. No, I mean people especially coming from let's say corporate to you know more like earlier stage. So let's say once they join, like how how do you keep them motivated? Because there is a lot of bad days in early stage companies. Yeah, and and that's the thing. That's where you're the founder, the CEO, and the 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 early team comes in and really, hey, we're building something big here. And, and as long as you do really well, the company is successful, people want to be a part of success and people really want to build something. And, and my management style has also always been to give people real responsibility. It's not, and, and coming back to the US, Europe, and maybe Danish Nordic style of managing, we give real responsibility. Like we will let you run with the ball and, and really do something. And people love that. I think coming over here, I did also realize that there was a clear difference in management style and uh, uh, it is different, but the, the people here really like it. They like that they get to do stuff. Um, work is about, you know, having influence of what the outcome is and doing something meaningful. And we really believe in, in, in creating meaningful jobs. 
and talking about what work is about, uh, I believe that culture is a really big uh, ingredient of, uh, of a company being able to attract talent, to attract investors, to attract acquirers. So in, in your mind, or for example, like, like from what you've seen and learned, how do you really build a strong and, and positive culture? So uh, I, I don't want to talk about parenting too much, but um, uh, but it's it's also similar to parenting. It is the people around you are going to see everything that you do. Uh, what you say is less important than what you actually do. And that's the same thing with, with parenting. It's about how you behave. Whatever you do uh, trickles down to the entire organization. So rather than doing rules and stuff, just do what you want them to do. I think that's the most important thing. Of course, you you talk about it, you say it, you repeat it, and so on. But but really, doing it is so important. Yeah. And if we were to, uh, let's say, have yourself go back in time and you see Heine there sitting down, thinking about the idea, uh, thinking about the approach and speaking with the co-founder and about the journey uh, that is ahead with, with Vivino. You know, what, what would you tell your younger self in terms of advice? <laughs> that is a, a, an excellent uh, question for sure. I don't, I'm not sure I have something sort of clear in my head. I think one thing would probably be to, you know, uh, hold on because this is going to be a ride. Uh, and, and we've done some, I've, you know, I, I have three kids and moved uh, three kids and wife moved them from, from the safe haven of, of Copenhagen uh, onto over here, which has been a crazy ride. Uh, but I think, you know, enjoy it. And you think about how privileged you are to be able to be part of this. And, and you know, some travel can be painful, but imagine all the places you get to go to and so on and, and enjoy it. That's amazing. You know, the, uh, I have a funny story here. I have three kids too, uh, Heine. And, uh, you know, I always say that Kids are like startups, but unfortunately, there is no exit, and they only you only break even when they let you sleep at night. Yeah, yeah that is true. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, so what what is the best way for the folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Yeah, sure. I'm 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 on all the the, the usual things. I want to tell you one thing though. So, since I stepped down, I've started to do some videos on on YouTube. And that's been quite interesting, actually. So they should definitely check out Raw Startup on YouTube. I'm up to a few videos now, especially the last few videos. I'm pretty happy about the, I did one on OKRs, which we use internally. I did one on building a pitch deck recently, too. So they should definitely check those out. Other than that, I'm on, on Twitter and, and, and Facebook and, and so on. Really With my cool. name, it's pretty easy to find me. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, it, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show, Heine. Thank you so, so much. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.